It's our last episode of 2021. Wow, can you believe 2021 is almost over? It feels like I could close my eyes and it's January 1st, 2016 again, but it's not, no matter how hard I try. And I've tried so hard. This week, we are revisiting some of the stories we've covered in recent years, checking out the newest updates and recent developments. I'm Jacinta Royangeza. And I'm Hannah Cunningham. We'll be your hosts for the next half hour of environmental news and storytelling. Won't you join us as we tie up some loose ends, wrap up some of our stories, and move into the new year with a fresh and new impending sense of doom. From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. You're listening, you're listening. You're listening. You're listening. to Terra Informa. Before we begin this episode, we would like to acknowledge that this episode was produced in Treaty 6 territory in Amiskwitsiwiskigan, Beaver Hills House, or so-called Edmonton. We are broadcasting from unrecognized Papas Chase Cree territory. The Papas Chase Cree were displaced following consistent efforts from local officials like Frank Oliver to discredit the legitimacy of their treaty right to this territory and to reserve number 136, now South Edmonton. Not confined to history, this region is also the present homelands of many First Peoples who build their lives here, pursue livelihoods, and gather together, including Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, and Dene. Wherever you are listening from, we ask you to consider whose version of history informs your understanding of the land you are on. First, let's revisit the East Coast of Canada for an update on a story we covered earlier this year about who is able to harvest lobster. Here's Sonic Patel. Last March, we brought you a two-part episode series about Indigenous fishing rights and management. This story was prompted by violent and non-violent protests in fall of 2020 in Nova Scotia. The catalyst for these conflicts was the establishment of a new, self-regulated lobster fishery by the Sepaganagati First Nation. To summarize a complicated legal scenario, here's a brief overview. Fishing in Eastern Canada is very regulated, which is pretty understandable if you recall the collapse of the cod stock in the 1990s after years of overfishing. For lobster harvesting, there is a limited number of traps that can be set and a limitation to when fishing can occur in the year. But after a complex history of treaties and court cases, some Indigenous peoples have a unique right to fishing and seafood harvesting. This right is originally affirmed in a series of peace and friendship treaties signed between Atlantic Indigenous groups, including the Mi'kmaq, Abenaki, and Penobscot, and the British colonists in the newly ceded land of Acadia. This right was later reaffirmed in a Supreme Court case called the Marshall Decision, which states that Indigenous peoples can harvest and sell seafood to make a moderate livelihood, though the government is allowed to regulate Indigenous fishers if there is a justifiable conservation concern. So back to 2020, the Sepaganagati fishery opens their lobster harvesting under the stipulation that the group is allowed to harvest to make a moderate livelihood. 
the Sapaganagati fishery operates outside the number of allowed traps and harvesting season set by the federal regulator, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, also called the DFO. The creation of this fishery drew some ire from the non-Indigenous commercial fishers in the region, concerned about the sustainability of the lobster stock with the addition of off-season harvesting. Some even took matters into their own hands, and in their anger that the moderate livelihood fishery was acting in supposed violation of regulations, decided to illegally harass the indigenous fishers and damage their property. Sapaganagati fishery traps were removed and damaged. The fishery's boats were blocked and harassed by non-indigenous commercial fishers and even had a flare fired at them. Conflict peaked on October 13, 2020, when a van was set ablaze outside a facility the Sapaganagati catch was being stored at. The facility was looted and damaged. A few days later, another facility was set ablaze, and a suspect later charged for arson. A member of the Peak 2 Nation was shot at when attempting to stop people from stealing his traps. Chief Mike Sack of the Sapaganagati Nation was assaulted, and the RCMP were called in to maintain the peace. In addition to the attacks on the nation, the community also faced being blacklisted and boycotted by the adjacent communities. In our two episodes, we tackled the question of the conservation impact of the livelihood fishery, and it seemed like this impact was pretty negligible. The first and foremost thing to remember is that Atlantic Indigenous people have sustainably harvested seafood since time immemorial. So if there's anyone who knows how to manage these resources, and if there's anyone who has the right to harvest these resources, it's local Indigenous groups. Added to that, the number of traps the Sapaganagati fishery was issuing is incredibly minuscule compared to the scale of the commercial industry. For reference, commercial license holders are allowed to harvest 389,000 lobster annually from Lobster Fishing Area 34. In the same area, the Sapaganagati Moderate Livelihood Fishery issued about 200 traps this year. When we last discussed this issue, the government was still deciding how to respond to the Sapaganagati fishery and other indigenous groups that have the right to fish for a moderate livelihood. So, what's the latest? Well, the DFO has negotiated lobster fishing arrangements with the Bear River and Annapolis Valley First Nations, and between them allow for a total of 3,500 traps to be allocated an interim understanding was reached with the Podla Tech First Nation for the creation of a livelihood fishery. The Acadia Band has also established a modern livelihood lobster fishery in arrangement with the DFO. One of the reasons these bands may have agreed to cooperate with the DFO could be out of fear. Their equipment and traps would be seized by the regulator. The DFO has spent the months previous seizing traps, stopping boats, releasing catches, and arresting fishers. Chief Mike Sack himself was arrested earlier this year. Former fisheries minister Bernadette Jordan said the DFO enforcement was important to prevent the mob violence we saw in 2020 
But negotiations with the Sabaganagati nation are not going so well. The DFO and the nation have not come to an agreement, and the nation's fishers allege that the DFO has been seizing their traps. The government alleges that they brought the same deals made to the other nations, but that the Sabaganagati group is not willing to work with them. But is blaming the Sabaganagati nation fair? After all, they are working within their treaty rights, and even though the Marshall decision does allow the DFO to regulate livelihood fishing for conservation's sake, this concern may not be justified due to the very small scale of the fishery. And even if it does have a significant impact on the lobster stock, we find ourselves at the question, who has the right to harvest lobster? Surely the peoples that have been harvesting for generations, who have their rights enshrined in a 250-year-old treaty, have a pretty good claim, especially over commercial fishers. It's also important to remember that this is the same federal government that claims to be committed to Indigenous rights, self-government, and self-determination as part of reconciliation. In 2021, Fisheries Minister Bernadette Jordan, who worked on this portfolio and the aforementioned agreements, lost her seat in the federal election. The new minister is Joyce Murray, who reaffirmed the government's goal of sustainability and reconciliation. Easy enough, right? The DFO has still not come to a resolution with the Sabaganagati nation. And once again, the dispute has boiled over into conflict. In August, several of the nation's boats were cut loose from their wharf, and their catch was stolen. On November 25th, a year after it was the target of arson, the same lobster warehouse was burned to the ground. Luckily, no one was inside or injured, and the nation had recently stopped storing their catch there. So unfortunately, there's not a lot of progress on this issue. Yes, some bands have been able to create livelihood fisheries in agreement with the DFO, which hopefully will support those communities. But for the Sabaganagati nation, the government continues to offer platitudes on the importance of indigenous rights and reconciliation, while seizing their traps and violating treaty rights. The nation continues to face violence and harassment from some of their settler colonial neighbors, including some who, without any shred of irony, accuse them of damaging the sustainability of the lobster stock, while taking part in an industry that harvests 2,000 times more lobsters than the nation. Here's hoping the new minister and the Sabaganagati nation can come to an agreement, one that upholds the principles of truth and reconciliation. This has been Sonic Patel. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Sonic. Back in 2019, we covered the creation and early work of the Canadian Energy Centre, or as you may know it, Alberta's Energy War Room. The CEC has now been around for two years. Let's hear from Hannah Cunningham on what they've been up to. A couple of years ago, wow, when we could still record episodes in an actual studio booth together, Sonic Patel and I created a two-part episode on the Canadian Energy Centre, also referred to as the Alberta Energy War Room. 
In this update, I'm going to be answering some of our questions that we had back in 2019 about the Canadian Energy Centre and filling in some of the information gaps that existed back then. To investigate the alleged interference that foreign-funded environmental groups were causing in Alberta's oil and gas industry, in July of 2019, a public inquiry into anti-Albertan activities was launched by the provincial government. A forensic accountant from Calgary named Steve Allen was appointed as the Inquiry Commissioner, leading to the title The Allen Inquiry. The results of this inquiry were released in October of this year, much past its goal of wrapping up by July 2020. It also cost taxpayers $3.5 million. So, did this pricey and overdue report accomplish the goals of the Canadian Energy Centre? In my opinion, not really. We have reported on the results of the Allen Inquiry in another News Roundup episode, which we will link in the show notes. The inquiry was unable to identify how much of a role $400 played in cancelling resource projects, and it was also unable to find out how much money was spent advocating against the oil and gas industry. An update on funding for the Canadian Energy Centre. When the centre was first established, the plan was for the centre to operate with $30 million in funding per year. $20 million of this funding came from an emissions levy placed on high carbon emitters, and the other $10 million came from the province's advertising budget. In March 2020, when the COVID-19 pandemic began in Canada, the centre's budget and resources were drastically reduced. However, in February 2021, the government's budget restored the centre's funding to around $12 million, ending an advertising moratorium that was put in place during the beginning of the COVID pandemic. A request for proposals was put out on how to change the values and attitudes held by people in eastern Canada and the northern United States. The Canadian Energy Centre launched an ad campaign in Times Square at the end of September of this year, to promote the country's oil and gas industry in the United States. You may have seen pictures of these, quote, choose-friendly oil, end quote, ads on social media. In the original episodes about the center, we talked about their logo and the drama behind their two original logos, which seemed to closely resemble those of other companies. In January 2020, the center stated that they were planning on keeping their second logo and were in the process of trademarking it. But that didn't seem to work out, as the current logo is simply Canadian Energy Centre in a serif font. To finish up this update, I looked into the staff of the Canadian Energy Centre to see if there had been any notable changes. One change was that there is a new senior research analyst. In our original episodes, Sonic and I had been wondering about the lack of environmental scientists on the staffing list, despite the mandate of the centre including conducting research about environmentalism and the oil and gas industry. I did some digging to see if the new senior research analyst, Ven Venkatachalam, was more oriented towards environmental science than previous staff members. It was kind of hard to find information on him, but according to kimseaver.ca, who is an independent journalist based in Lethbridge, Alberta, He graduated from the University of Calgary's Master of Public Policy program in 2013, and then was an independent researcher, which included consulting for government and private organizations on finance and taxation. So it's still looking like a lack of environmental scientists on the staff. That is my update for now on the Canadian Energy Centre. 
but we will keep them on Terra Informa's radar and will continue to provide updates on their activity in Alberta and abroad. If you're just tuning in, this is Terra Informa. For our final episode of the year, we're revisiting some of our old stories and providing some updates on new developments. Now, time to go back to school for an update to a story we covered two years ago about the state of climate education in Canada. In September 2019, we brought you an episode about discrepancies and weaknesses in climate change education programs across the country. We were inspired by a protest led by Youth for Climate, and we wanted to talk about how important younger generations are in the climate action movement. And youth awareness of climate change is hugely impacted by how much kids learn about the topic in school. To have an informed and engaged youth, children need to learn about climate change, why it's happening, and what we can do about it. In our episode, Elizabeth Dowdle and myself, Sonic Patel, shared our experiences with climate education and some of the things we felt we should have learned. So what's the latest with climate education? Education scholar Ellen Field found that climate education curriculums are still pretty inconsistent between the provinces. Along with her colleagues Pamela Schwartzberg and Paula Berger, Ellen surveyed over 3,000 Canadians, including youth, educators, parents, and the public. Her research shows that, while most students are concerned about climate change, almost half failed a simple climate change knowledge test. Most Canadians also think more should be done to educate young people about the climate crisis, especially educators. But only a small number of instructors actually cover climate change at all. And of those that do, most only dedicate a few hours per year or semester on the topic. In terms of regional differences, I'll give you 10 guesses as to which two provinces have the lowest levels of climate change acceptance and the lowest support for more climate education. But you'll probably only need two. Right here in Alberta, and our neighbors to the east, Saskatchewan. In both provinces, over 60% of students failed the climate change knowledge test. Some provinces are even choosing to present the quote-unquote debate on the reality of climate change. And don't get me wrong, knowing how we know climate change is happening is really important. But in Canada, where most instructors are spending less than 10 hours a year on the topic, should we really be focusing on a debate when there is strong scientific consensus? Field also noted there is not enough focus on climate solutions, and found that nearly half of students her team spoke to did not believe humans could do anything about climate change. Focusing on climate solutions is also really important, to help students that are struggling with climate anxiety. So how can we improve climate education in Canada? Fields research finds that most educators feel they do not have the knowledge or skills to teach about climate change. Field believes that educators themselves need to be taught about climate change as part of their degrees and need to have access to resources, strategies, and professional development to support them in teaching about such a complex issue. 
Education ministries need to better integrate climate change throughout the entire curriculum, across all classes, and covering the depth of climate science, impacts to our societies, cultural intersections, climate solutions, and the justice and ethical considerations that are interwoven in climate crisis discussions. Another group asking for better climate education in Alberta is the Alberta Youth Leaders for Environmental Education, a union of students passionate about climate change. In a white paper, the group presented some more recommendations for better climate education. Like Field, the Alberta Youth Leaders for Environmental Education also think climate, environment, and energy literacy should be integrated throughout all classes and all grades. An interesting idea is that students could even have the opportunity to develop and implement their own carbon reduction efforts. The group also thinks students can connect with the environment with more outdoor learning opportunities. Students should be encouraged and have the resources to take sustainable transportation options to school, like biking or taking the bus. And schools could also look into renewable energy options. And if there's two things most schools in Alberta have, it's a lot of rooftop space for solar and a huge need for anything that can help save money. The students in the group even feel like there are opportunities for student advisory committees to collaborate with decision makers at their schools, municipalities, and even the provincial level. So climate education in Canada has not seen much improvement since our last episode on the topic, but remains as urgent as ever. Young people are going to inherit a climate crisis that will affect every aspect of their life. The least we can do is make sure they are educated about it. This has been Sonic Patel. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Sonic. And now here's Sarah Chitsas with an update on the melting of the Greenland ice sheet and the consequences on our hydro system. We covered this issue all the way back in 2017. In August and September of 2017, we discussed the loss of ice in Greenland and the breaking of a 5,800 square kilometer large iceberg in Antarctica. As you may expect based on headlines over the past few years, ice is still melting. But what has ice sheet melt looked like in the past year? And what are some of the unsurprising and some surprising consequences of the accelerated loss of ice and snowpack? Here are some updates on ice. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or the NOAA for short, releases an annual Arctic Report Card. The Arctic Report Card for October 2020 to September 2021 assesses changes in snow cover, sea ice volume, tundra vegetation, and surface air and ocean temperature. According to the Arctic Report Card, this period was the seventh hottest recorded in the Arctic and the Arctic is continuing to warm at a rate that is about two times faster than that of the rest of the globe. Other work on ocean acidification has shown that the Arctic Ocean is acidifying faster than the global ocean, which has the potential to impact the Arctic ecosystem. This means that algae, zooplankton, and fish in the Arctic Ocean may be impacted by acidification. The Arctic Report Card for 2020 to 2021 also reports that Greenland experienced three extreme melt events this year. According to an article in the Washington Post, Greenland lost more ice than it gained for the 25th year in a row this past year, and rain was observed at the summit of Greenland for the first time in recorded history. 
When rain falls on ice sheets, it can create a cycle of further melting. Rain falling on ice sheets changes the shape of the ice crystals and makes them darker, which means that they absorb more sunlight rather than reflecting it, and this can contribute to further warming of the atmosphere. Rain on ice sheets can also lead to more melting on the surface of the ice sheet. And when rain falls on ice sheets, it can also create what are called ice lenses. Ice lenses are basically layers of ice that form along the surface of the ice sheet and allow water to run off the surface of the sheet rather than sinking down into the sheet and freezing there. Finally, rain on ice sheets, like what was seen in Greenland this year, can make it really hard for researchers to conduct fieldwork and gather data on ice and ice melts. When talking about ice sheets and ice melting, it's good to bear in mind that the impacts of melting sea ice and ice sheets are widespread. One example of the widespread effects of melting sea ice are rising sea levels. Ice sheets, like what is seen in Greenland, are so massive that they have especially strong gravitational pulls, and the sea levels around them tend to be high. As ice sheets melt, their mass decreases, along with the strength of their gravitational pull, which can lead local sea levels to lower, and sea levels elsewhere, sometimes even across the world, to rise. Salinity, ocean circulation, and atmospheric patterns are also impacted by melting ice sheets and sea ice. According to an article in the Nature Communications Journal from October 2021, atmospheric research has indicated that the climate conditions that are a result of melting Arctic sea ice accounted for nearly half of the increase in risk for wildfires along the west coast of North America. While wildfires are not exclusively called by melting sea ice, Warming ocean water can generate weather conditions that are called vortexes, and vortexes can eventually lead to drier and warmer weather in the western U.S., which are the perfect conditions for wildfires. Now, two of what I find the most surprising impacts of melting ice sheets to be are beaver colonization and salmon habitat expansion. According to satellite data, Beavers are colonizing more of the Arctic tundra in Alaska as they can access more of the landscape as ice sheets melt. While a beaver takeover of Alaska may sound like the plot of a strange new sci-fi, this may actually contribute to even more thawing of permafrost. As beavers build dams, they can cause disruptions to waterways and lead to flooding of infrastructure and valleys. The flooding of valleys can eventually form new lakes, which can contribute to the warming of the ground and the melting of permafrost. And, as permafrost thaws, it releases greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, further contributing to warming of the atmosphere. On the other hand, Pacific salmon may benefit from retreating glaciers along the central coast of the Gulf of Alaska. As these ice sheets melt, there is an estimated 27% increase in river habitat that could be new homes to salmon spawning grounds, according to an article in the Chilkat Valley News. If Pacific salmon are able to access more spawning grounds, salmon production may be increased, which will also improve food security. However, whether salmon are able to access new spawning grounds or not, they're still vulnerable to other effects of climate change, like ocean acidification, warming water, rising sea levels, and events like extreme floods and droughts. Overall, the loss of sea ice and ice sheets is really scary. The impacts of melts can be widespread and devastating to people, infrastructure, biodiversity, and ecosystems. If we are able to curb our emissions and work to mitigate climate change, we may hope to avoid some of the potential devastation that is expected to come with the loss of ice. This has been Sarah Chitzas for Terra Informa. Thanks, Sarah. Well, my little Terra Informies, 
I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this episode and for 2021. Thank you so much to everyone who listened this year. We really appreciate it. We'll catch you next year for even more environmental news. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, and all of our content is created by a team of volunteers. This week's episode was written by Sonic Patel, me, Hannah Cunningham, and Sarah Chitsas. Our producer is me, Hannah Cunningham. If you like what you heard, check out our website, Facebook, or follow us on Twitter at Terra Informa. Our next few episodes are archives while we take a little holiday break. In fact, we'll air some of the original stories that we updated in this episode. So if you're curious about any of the updates we talked about in this episode, keep an ear out in the next few weeks. We'll be back soon in 2022 with some brand new stories. From all of us here at Terra Informa, we wish you all happy holidays from coast to coast to coast. <laughs>